out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer, songwriter, musician, guitarist. It is Martin Carr, one-time member of the Brit pop band The Boo Radleys, and has gone on to a successful solo career and has been active very recently. So you'll find out more about that and much more in this very interesting interview come conversation. Anyway, look, sit back, relax and enjoy. So, as you know, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Well, you have to start somewhere. Martin, tell us everything. Tell us now. I think in the same kind of way, um, I remember... The first time, the first record I remember loving was uh, um, Billy Don't Be a Hero by yes. Paper Lace. It was something like that, yes. But yeah. it was a, there was a lot of narrative stories in the 70s, weren't there? There was one by Telly Savalas and one about playing a deck of cards in a church, which was... That's um, right, yeah. Which was... <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, my dad was really into, like, Rod Stewart and ELO and um, Bob Dylan was a, was a big one for me when I first listened to him. Um, I guess I guess it was the Beatles that... The first time right i uh i fell in love with something yes but that Did... but uh, cont- but in regards to something that was happening at the time it was probably uh jesus and mary chain i'd say the first thing that kind of felt like i connected with it and it was modern and and happening it was very happening mm. did you come from quite a musical family then were your parents at all no no, my mum was quite a bit older than my dad. She was just into Sinatra, and I got into um, Chet Baker because of my mum. Not because she listened to him, but because she used to listen to the kind of radio shows that he would be played on. Um, but my dad had a lot of records. Right. Yes. Yeah. So were not you... musical, no. No. But were you, did you, was your dad Scottish? No, both my parents were from Manchester. Right, so that's where you grew up. No, I grew up in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, actually, I grew up on, um, on the Wirral, New Brighton. Right. But um, my dad had moved up to work at the Ray power plant in the uh, late 60s. That's where I was born. But we were only there for a couple of years. Yes. So kind of 80, 84 then, you were sort of, you were probably getting, you were like 16 then, weren't you? Yeah, 15, and, 16. Yeah. And was this kind of your sort of the musical awakening, was this kind of period? No, it wasn't awakening because I'd loved, um, I felt incredibly lucky to be a kid from like 79 to 83. I thought it's just the peak of pop music. And I loved all of it pretty much. Um, but then I kind of it started getting a bit too clean cut and started looking elsewhere, I think. And, you know, you start reading um, The Enemy. Um, I didn't have, I always regretted not having older siblings. Right. But uh, my mate Sice had an older brother, so we kind of used to 
listen to his record. It's funny what an, what an influence an older brother or sister has, really, isn't it? Yeah, he was really into the Stranglers. Right. So to, uh, go come home from school and and listen to their records. Yes. Sort of quite scary. Yeah. So, what was your first gig and first single you bought? Um, first single, I think well, the first thing I remember having was um, "Message in a Bottle." Right. On green vinyl. Classic. Yeah, I, I their first six or seven singles I absolutely loved. Um, first gig was actually the Everly Brothers. Um, their, their comeback tour in '83, I think it was. God, that is I went cool. With my dad, yeah, I went with my brother, my dad, and me, me, me and my brother had kind of been uh, uh, we'd gone through a stray cats phase. We were uh, rockabillies. Me and Sice and my brother and a few of our friends as well. We all just um, combed our hair up and pretended it was 1958. There you go. Yes. Yeah, so well, even though the music we listened to was mostly maybe 1981. Yes. Well, um, I think the Stray Cats kind of had a massive moment, didn't they? Really, they'd come from yeah. that New York scene, and there would been another band from that, that from them called the Rockettes, who didn't quite ever get the single, but the Stray Cats. Kind of, I, don't, I suppose they brought a little bit of that kind of the cramps meets, I don't know. Well, I think um, it was a, a post-punk thing, wasn't it? Because before you'd had 50s bands like Darts and Shawadi Wadi and... Uh, the Rubettes. The Rubettes. God, they were great. I, I mean, the first live thing I saw actually was um, a stage show of Yakety Yak in Liverpool. Um, and it was Darts with a band. And I think all the McGann's were in it. Uh, yes so that would that would actually have been before the Everly Brothers but then the first um pop gig I went to the Thompson Twins yes uh, I had a really weird relationship with the Thompson Twins in that I kept on buying their records long long after I stopped liking any of them <laughs> it's like an OCD thing it's quite strange. And he's playing in Norwich this coming weekend actually on one of those kind of 80s let's rock I events yeah, I saw, um, I've just been out on tour and I saw a couple of posters with him on. Yes, it's quite it's quite interesting because I did an interview with him. I can't remember his name now, which is embarrassing. Tom Bailey. Tom Bailey. And um, mm. yes, he was part of that kind of going to, you know, living in squats and going to Stonehenge in his kind of yeah. late 70s phase. And then the woman in, in it is now married to Jimmy... Coolty, who was the KLF, and I was like, because I watched I the KLF film at the weekend, yeah, and um, and then I had to do, you know, you do that research, you just go Google and look at Wikipedia, and went, oh yeah, yeah. that's that's what's happened to to Alana, Alana Curry was her name. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so um, yeah, because their first records were there was like seven or eight of them, weren't they? And it, they looked quite crusty and yeah, um, a bit like the Human League, really. And then once they just got rid of a load of extra people and smartened up a bit and it worked for them. Well, the 80s was a bit of a strange one because <clears throat> you did have quite a few different scenes, you know. There was the kind of the early, I suppose, I don't know, there, there was the root new romantic electronic scene that started to happen. There was also things like yeah. the new Paisley scene. And then you got that Trevor Horn production sound that suddenly, I suppose that's where the Thompson Twins suddenly had that kind of sound. I don't know. You li listen to it now, it's their hits. It's quite, 
it's so dated isn't it but it's kind of so clinical yeah. and um, some of it and, works um like uh i think the frankie's hollywood records still have power to them yes but when you hear i don't know tina turner or dire straits or those that kind of and and david bowie's 80s albums after Let's yeah. Dance become a little bit like, oh, that's interesting. Well, it's just awful um, snare sound that everyone, everything has. Yeah. Even something like um, uh, the Queen is Dead album. I, and I think that into um, when we started making records, that snare sound was still pretty big. <laughs> it, did. It, it makes a lot of those records unlistenable, those mid 80s records. I know it's a bit disappointing, really, isn't it? But then, yes, because because for me, you know, the eighty three to eighty seven, the glory, the glory is of indie pop. Really, it's when the Smiths appear, isn't it? And and mm-hmm. nothing is the same again, as I think. But then, you know, for that period, so at that age, you were just sort of getting to. Were you leaving school at sixteen, or were you going on to sixth form? Oh no, I was leaving as soon as I could. Um, I couldn't really afford to buy albums, so it's just purely singles. Um, and I, I don't know, I don't think it was 85, 86 that I started to buy indie singles uh, by, you know, like The Shaman and The Wedding Presents and The Brilliant Corners and uh, The Bodines, people like that. My God, they are solid gold, aren't they? Yeah. All of them. There you go. Did you get the cassette? Did you go and buy the NMEs on a Wednesday and sort of... I. I did used to go and buy it. We didn't get it till Thursday up north, but um, it was one of the reasons I wanted to move to London so I could just get the papers a day early. Um, I th- if you got down to Lime Street Station early enough, you could get them on on Wednesday evening. I think. What was the I Liverpool sound? It. What was the Liverpool scene like? Because most people you know, who were part of the 80s scene, I suppose, all went to Eric's, didn't they? It was the big thing, Eric's. But Ah, that was before my time, I think, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't start going over to Liverpool till the late 80s, really, as we just moved over there. Um, and there were two scenes, well, there were three scenes. There was the normal club going out scene, and then there was us lot who just thought it was the 60s, 1980, what do we used to call it? Uh, 1980, 69. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was the bands like the Lars and the Real People and who were kind of uh, influenced by the 60s the same way that we were, but kind of uh, just had a completely different vibe and a different yes. um, style. Yes, this is true. When did you get a musical instrument? When did you think, right, I need to stop just buying singles, I need to get a guitar? Really early, like 12, wait, well, it was Christmas 82. And me and my brother, my brother, I keep saying my brother because he's a twin brother, so we kind of did everything together. Uh, me and him and Scythe got guitars, really cheap K guitars, and uh, didn't play them for a few years. Didn't really, well, first thing we did was we took him round to his house and his brother um, wound every string up and all three guitars until they snapped. <laughs> and that's Strangler's fans for you. <laughs> and uh, um, 
but yeah, I found it really difficult to play, really difficult. I found it quite difficult to learn anything. You know, in school, I was hopeless. I couldn't concentrate. Um, and the same way for the guitar. So I kind of gave it up once I realized that it wasn't going to be easy. <laughs> and uh, I didn't start again until 86 or something. No, it was just kind of lying around and I'd pick it up and put it down again. Yes. Had that stage, were you still, you know, had you sort of gone off into the wonderful world that was the working environment? Yeah, I had to go on like um, schemes because I'd left school with nothing. So I was, um, I had a couple of awful jobs where I didn't really understand what I was supposed to be doing. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, awful. I, I, I kind of think, think that gave me the impetus in the end to really try hard to get the band somewhere. Yes, absolutely. I'd come home from work and I would um, spend a few hours just ringing venues, trying to get us support gigs. So how did the formation of the band sort of start? Uh, well, it was me and Sice and at school, well before we got instruments or anything, we decided we were going to be in a band. And we didn't, we didn't really talk about what kind of music we were going to make until just before the first album, I don't think. Uh, we were just going to, we just wanted to be in a band. And um, there's nothing else to do in those days. So we just walked, every night we'd walk around the streets for hours on end, just kind of making plans. Yes. Not the kind of plans, yeah, but plans for after we got famous, not nothing to do with <laughs> how we were how we were going to get there. Yes, well, absolutely. But it's it's good to dream, isn't it? And and yeah. obviously at that stage, you know, you your first album comes out. Is this on Action Records, isn't it? That's right, yeah. Yes. But did you find it a little bit of a strange time to be in a band in the sense that, you know you know 87 as I always say 87 the Smiths had broken up then there's this kind of this new wave of you know 16 to 18 year olds ecstasy comes along you know there was all the kind of dance scene everyone's getting very excited and then the orb you know KLF and then you had to you know 4AD with people like the Pixies and Throne Muses and then Seattle as well did you feel a little bit like where do we kind of shuffle into this little scene? Um, not until I think um, there were two key records for us, and one was uh, "You Made Me Realize" by My Bloody Valentine, and the other was uh, "You're Living All Over Me," uh, Dinosaur Junior album. It's like eighty seven, yes. I think. I ha I'd already had the first one because I really liked the uh, first single, but nothing. It was nothing like the second one. The second one was. Fantastic. And that, that kind of, I saw a path then. I thought that's what I want to do. And um, I think because I could emulate it, um, I didn't have to learn fancy chords or, you know, I could just make noise and hide behind that, hide my uh, lack of skill. Even though, you know, Jay Maskis and Kevin Shields are both great uh, you know, visionaries on guitar, I would say. Mm. And I was just um, copying a noise, really. 
Yes. So how did you, when once the first album come, come out, did it, was that a bit like your sort of the calling card? Did you sort of feel like, well, at least people know we exist and we can show them something? Yeah, I think um, if only I could just make one single, I'd be happy. Um, but then you make a record and it's not enough and then you have to do something else. But um, yeah, it's just slow and steady progress, really. Yes. And you'd have small aims. And once that was done, then you'd just want to do the next thing. Yes. And when did you first meet Alan McGee? Oh, um, um, I first did met you, Oh, had you signed to Rough Trade before? Was that your yeah. first? And they, and like a... Uh, we did like cards, three EPs, I think, for Rough Trade. And then we recorded an album for them, but they couldn't afford to put it out. Or they used to go bankrupt every three days or something. Yes, I was going through. Um, I was going through a, a bunch of old stuff the other day, and I found a um, a postcard from Jeff Travis, which he put in an envelope with a check, and at the bottom he'd written, "I hope it doesn't bounce," <laughs> <laughs> and the check is still in there. So yeah, um, <laughs> um, and so I think our manager at the time managed um, Slow Dive, so. Mm -hmm they got us to creation that way yes so what was the first time because because by then creation records in the 80s they had some amazing kind of bands roster yeah. of bands and then they, they yeah. sort of did the my bloody valentine period didn't they um as well that was, was a label I, I wanted to be on it was, it was um where we belonged yes interestingly enough they also now. They also signed Sugar, which was, you know, um, Huskadoo's Bob Mould, who did this kind of first solo album, didn't he, or two, as Bob Mould, and then came out with Sugar, which were just yeah. enormous. And they, that was um, that was a great deal they did, actually. Yes. Yeah, we did. Um, we supported them at um, their first London gig, which was a, a, a you know, just they were... They were seeing what we were like, so because they were talking about taking us on tour to the states, which we did. We the first tour that we did in the states was six weeks with, on the first U.S. Sugar tour, which was quite a, a learning curve. Yes, I would imagine Bob's quite intense. Yeah, we weren't really supposed to hang out with him because he wasn't drinking, and we were drinking a lot, and we were told <laughs> to, you know. Um, but he warmed up like halfway through he's a really nice guy um not like you know you listen to his records especially those two solo records black sheets of rain and where warehouse uh, workbook workbook yeah um he's a nice guy the only problem we had was that they wouldn't let a sound check they would play they would sound check and then they would play like who songs until the doors opened and then we were allowed to go on set up and play i don't know if it was some kind of test <laughs> uh, that's slightly uh, mean isn't it I, it's interesting because it really I, I tried to get an interview with the drummer who'd been in one of those very cultish bands and i'd meant interviewed a few of the other members and i thought oh, that'd be interesting to hear about what he did in that band which i can't remember i think they're from boston is it and um then, 
Malcolm is the drummer. He was Boston. Yeah, and it was a one of those. It was the guitar. Sorry, it was a bass player who'd been in uh, Mission of Burma. Yeah, it wasn't Mission of Burma, but it was one of those ones that they were really flamboyant band, um, which right. I will. Um, but then when I was trying to get this interview sorted out with him, he then said, I do not want to mention anything to do with sugar. And I was like, mm, OK. Oh. those moments do happen I've never done the interview with him either it was like it it all all felt a little bit like oh okay I'm sorry I didn't you know I I, I wasn't looking for the gossip but he was obviously oh he was in a band called the human sexual response oh wow which was um and they'd had a few good singles and they were quite a flamboyant outfit with some flamboyant members and they were quite a nice ones but I just noticed his name and then I've noticed that he was in sugar I thought oh that's good you know always quite enjoyable to get um but yeah he he, kind of the conversation was like when when a member when some artists I don't want to mention that period of my life it's like okay that was only 30 years ago still hanging in there (laughs) yeah (laughs) yes but you yeah so how was the creation experience because this is when things start to really move well don't they um yeah we uh i preferred it the early stuff when we were on there that we were kind of just left alone to do what we wanted to do um which was giant steps and then they were you know they let us do a double album and Oh, it was great. And so it was after that they did the Sony deal and everything started to get a bit uh a bit more um organized. Yes. It's it pretty wasn't really our what, style. Was it um an intense because because you know, having done this kind of show for quite a few years, you know, most bands have that five-year narrative, you know, the one year honeymoon, John Peel, you know, play, John Peel session first album and then you know intense kind of period and then it's all like by the third album things are starting to really it's a bit like everything's kind of tense quite you know yeah emotions um, are high yeah McGee was never really a fan of the band um so it was kind of uh tense in that way I I mean I I wish that we'd we'd got off the label after giant steps um but I don't know I I had some great friends there so I used to enjoy going into the I probably went in a bit too much because I had nothing else to do going into the offices um but I they kind of let us do they let us make the records that we were going to make. They weren't always happy with them afterwards. But. Yes. But what was that? Because because we're talking the John Major years, you know, Shine. They, they remember those Shine compilations? Everybody was getting very excitable and slightly complacent when you think about it socially and politically and culturally. Did you feel a little bit like you were on some sort of zeitgeist that everything you touched was kind of turning to gold? Because your first album, Everything's All Right, was 55, then Giant Steps, 17, and then you come out with Wake Up, which was like, wow. You know, yeah, did it feel- I, I think, yeah, I, I think the Giant Steps period up until Wake Up is my, is my favorite bit um uh and i did feel like we were there were so many 
possibilities for us um and so many places that we could take the band because we weren't really anything you know we 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 were just um we didn't feel like we were part of anything mm. at that point and uh but the problem was i think was that i couldn't really uh i just wasn't a very good musician <laughs> and i wasn't a very um and i wasn't very collaborative either so um you know we never played together um because i would just get frustrated and bored quite easily so yeah it was just me kind of writing songs and sending them cassettes and so everything was uh, limited by that yeah so i couldn't really um and i and i was just listening to i was listening to i started listening to hip-hop in the late 80s and kind of by that point 94 it was pretty much all i was listening to i wasn't really interested in bands in the same way um but i didn't know how to make that kind of music i didn't no, know how I... to make the music that i wanted to make which wasn't necessarily hip-hop you know uh, but i just felt a bit restricted by what we were doing um but it was all my own fault you know Yes. I, just, I, I just couldn't I, I couldn't uh, concentrate on anything. Why was that? Focus. Uh, well, I've since been diagnosed with ADHD, but then I didn't, you know, just didn't know. Yeah. So how was your experience? Because the, the album's recorded in Rockfield, which is now it's quite a famous. Which one? Uh, the, wake the, Up. Wake Up. What was that experience yeah. like? That's fantastic. I think we did three albums there. Uh, first two, uh, Wake Up and Come On Kids were amazing um, because we were just, you know, living on a farm in Wales and, and waking up in the morning, making a record. It's fantastic, <laughs> you know, it's just what you, you dream of doing when you're, when you're a kid. And... Were you able to sort of go with a kind of a blank sheet and sort of create quite quickly no everything was um demoed beforehand because i couldn't really um uh improvise that well so um and i think the others kind of resent it i think they resent it now because i've I've read them <laughs> talking about it. uh i i had to prepare in such a way that um, you know, all my stuff was done before we got there. Right. Yes. And I guess, I mean, God, you know, I haven't heard it. But um, what was the, how did the sing your fame, how did the famous single come together so seamlessly? Was it one of those ones that you just knocked it up in 10, 10 minutes? No, that, when we were, um, we'd already recorded it before we did the album. We recorded it um, somewhere else. Um it's just a, uh, a one-off single. I'd written it in Preston, where I was living. Um, and straight away, it was... As soon as, the first thing I wrote was the chorus bit. Straight away, you know, right, I, you know, this, is, this could be something. Um, and we recorded it, and it was too fast. It was faster, can you believe, than it is now, and in a higher key. <laughs> so it sounds like Sice is, like, suffocating on a... 
a racing car. Um, and the drumming's different as well. It's quite, it's quite different. Uh, it's the same song, but the same arrangement, but just the way it's done is different. Yes. Um, and a lot, enough people said it to us for us. Okay, well, we'll have another crack at that. Um, so we did that with the rest of the album at Rockfield. And yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's all about the, the bass and the drums, that one, we made sure they Did were. you, who were you working with on the produ production or producer front? Me and Tim used to produce the records, Tim the bass player. Right. Uh, we had an engineer that we always used, but it was me and him that did the producing. Yes. Producers scared us because they used to, we got told that, you know, get a producer, they will make you play through the song until you get it right. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yes. And did and, and at this point, did was it quite um I mean, obviously dealing with a certain amount of kind of fame and notoriety and sort of you know TV appearances, did how did that kind of affect you at this stage? Um I, I didn't care as long as I had a drink, I was all right. Um, which is a problem in itself. Um but I, I, I was just so happy not to have to go and work in an office anymore. Yes. <laughs> it was all great for me. I, I, um, a lot of it is, is boring, you know, but there's a lot of waiting around. Hurry yes. up and wait. Hurry up and wait, we used to call it. Um, but I was just so, I was just so grateful that, you know, I was kind of up for anything. Then, I mean, how do you sort of, with that kind of success, coming back and then not coming back because you didn't go away, but how did you then sort of regroup and sort of want to follow that up? Because because obviously everyone's probably thinking, gee, that was good, now we can really capitalise on this. Yeah, but not in the... We didn't just want to go in and make the same record again. And... The only thing I think we decided was that we didn't want to use any um, extra musicians, so there's going to be no strings or horns on the next one. Um, and that's, and I did kind of um, improve a bit with my guitar playing, just because I had to really, because it was only going to be the four of us. And, uh, I, 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 those two albums are kind of the same album for me. I know they sound different, but I wrote them in the same room and it was all quite, everything was flowing nicely. Yes. Um, I was living in Preston, so there wasn't too many distractions. Um, and I think lyrically that was the first album that I was quite happy with. But like I say, I they kind of those two albums kind of get confused in my mind. And you're still on creation at this stage. Yeah. Was, was that still navigating okay? It was all right. It was all about Oasis then, you know. Um, and every and it was about having hit records. It was about which wasn't completely wasn't the case when we started there. <laughs> and I know that being in a band should be about having hit records, really. Well. 
Well, no, you know, music is. Did you ever sort of look at someone like David Bowie and think, you know, looking at his career, especially in the, say, the 70s, where he, you know, did, he did one album a year for the whole decade, as well as produce various people and relocate. But then he made some amazing musical shifts, didn't he, from his kind of early one to Ziggy to Aladdin Sane to Diamond Dogs. He he thought about it, though, and I couldn't think about stuff like that. I was just purely uh, just... Oh, I can't even describe what I was doing. I was just letting everything happen. Yes. There's never I never had a plan. Um so you know, so it quickly unravels, really. Um, you know, I started drinking, I started taking a lot of drugs. And um, which, you know, Bowie did as well. <laughs> By <laughs> but to help it, him, didn't know, it? <laughs> yeah, I, I let it take over, and um, uh, yeah, nothing, just couldn't plan anything. Yeah, so when you were, you know, when you're going through that process, I guess it's different in retrospect, but 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 when you look back at when things start to get out of control, how do you kind of remember that and how were you sort of feeling kind of at the time did you did it did you feel kind of like quite self-destructive at that point or were you quite happy yeah. <laughs> no, I, I was very happy um I was spending far too much time on my own I couldn't really uh, form proper relationships I would just go out drinking with strangers all the time um because that way I could never really have to, I never had to explain myself. Um, but it, it, it was an unhappiness born of just frustration, really. Why am I like this? Why, why can't I just be like everyone else? Everyone else is getting on with their lives. And um, Did you have, because I, I think it was the, the lead singer of The Farm, and he was saying it was kind of difficult at one stage because he was kind of had all the responsibility and they just wanted to spend lots of time with their wives going to kitchen unit shops and buying furniture and worrying about the curtains with their new girlfriends and wives. Yeah. And he was thinking, this is really quite hard work. Can we kind of focus on the band a bit? Did you have that kind of relationship at all with the other members at um, times? Kind of, yeah. But I was, I was quite jealous of them being able to do that. And um, also, I was quite glad just to be left alone with, uh, you know, writing the songs and stuff, because I just, I couldn't even play guitar in front of people. You know, I had um, uh, quite a lot of anxiety in that sense. Um, But... I think I think I was quite, you know, envious of people who were living normal lives because I just didn't feel like it was possible. Yes, because I did an interview last week with somebody who had stage fright and said, well, that was it. Did you ever get to that point where you could barely go on stage with the band? No, no, I was, I was always pretty good on stage. I mean, there were times when I was too drunk to play, but um, I always felt protected by being in a band, you know, and... Uh, having a crew around. I, having the whole kind of band family around, I really loved and I, I it really um, affects me quite a lot when all that finished. Yes, it can be. Just having people doing everything for you, because I was pretty useless. Um, 
and I know a couple of people who've, who've happened to since as well, um, she's not been able to handle being out of that protective bubble, you know. I think this is what happens. I remember sort of, I suppose I was into sport when I was much younger, so hearing about football players who yeah, had that, that is... awful experience of not having training and not someone just telling them where to be and what to do. It's and exactly then suddenly, like that. Yeah, and exactly so you, like that. So you go and buy a pub. And then become yeah. <laughs> and then you see pictures of those kind of glamorous seventies people looking slightly overweight and a bit bald. Well, it's the yeah, Gaza syndrome, isn't it? You know, he needed that just to satisfy his um, constant need for entertainment and distraction, and you know. Yes, he did. He did. So when you got, we got to the the almost the millennium bug period, and you were doing sort of king size. W- were you still on quite a good creative journey, or was this quite a tricky one? Because king size is a tricky one because I just wasn't really interested anymore, and um, I didn't. The stuff I was writing wasn't really exciting me, and it didn't seem to fit with anything, and I just felt like that it was it all finished and it felt like there was a million new bands out and a million new sounds and stuff uh i was kind of listening to square pusher then and apex twin and um i just we, i just thought we were kind of old-fashioned and uh turning into just like a uh traditional kind of band might not even been a bad thing, but for me, it was, um, it just didn't interest me at all. Yes. So, so, you... when we, so when we went, sorry, so when we went into the studio, we were not getting on at all. And we spent more money on that album than we did on all the others put together because we used so many studios and it took so long because we just couldn't agree on a lot of stuff. And I didn't, I was run out of ideas. And what was your manager thinking at that stage? Uh, he distanced himself. It, well, it just all fell apart. He kind of started um, sending some, you know, young guy instead of himself. Uh, and um, yeah, we didn't. We weren't getting supported by anybody really. Yes. So, did was it? When you were making the album, did you feel like this is definitely going to be the last one as as yeah. the band? Yeah. Halfway through, I went to Morocco for Christmas, as you do. And um, I read uh, the Badfinger book, The Tragic Story of Badfinger. Oh, my God, that's the Oh, worst. my God, it's, it's awful. <laughs> and uh, that, I thought, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> um, and plus, when I was out there, I was just hearing most incredible music that wasn't new you know it was hundreds and hundreds of years old but it felt new yes i think brian jones um, had that experience didn't he as well with the yeah stands. he did yeah yeah <laughs> there's pipes of was it juju or something yeah it was yeah <laughs> um yeah that's it's just like hearing i mean it was like hearing apex twin or something it was so um other you know it wasn't just I can remember John Peel playing this amazing song by a band, I think they have North North African Meets Berlin called Dissident. And it was just like, the album was called Electric Sahara and it was just stunning. It was just like, I used to love the John Peel show because he would just throw these kind of amazing 
they had to know different bands in and different yeah. sounds and you just went it was an education wasn't it the peel show yeah yeah it was i think just... he's um his boy's pretty good as well yes so i listened to his show so that was quite good so did you have a moment as as a band in 99 where you sat down like to quote jim morrison this is the end <laughs> i can't remember how it was i i, I um i mean sice had been unhappy for a quite a long time and I couldn't really understand why he was carrying on so when I mentioned it to him that I wanted to quit you know he was straight away fine let's do it and it's quite a nice circular story actually because when our first album came out after we'd finished making it we sent loads of letters to John Peel mm -hmm. same place as Boo Radley's and uh, you know disguising our handwriting and <laughs> so. And the first time he played it, I was in flats in Liverpool. And he said, um, uh, I'm going to play a, a song off for a new, an excellent album by the Boo Radleys. I've been getting a lot of letters about it. I suspect they're from the band. <laughs> <laughs> and then he played it, and I was jumping up and down on the bed. And um, the phone rang in the hall, like a communal phone. And the girl knocked on the door and said, it's for you. And it was John Peel inviting us in for a session. That was fantastic. I mean, that's one of the best moments that I ever had. My God, that's a fantastic one. And was it but Del then, Griffith? Oh, yeah, it was. He hated us. We were late and we hung over and he wouldn't let us in the control room and he just hated the music we were making. <laughs> I didn't know who he was then. Um, yeah. Yes. People had been down to meters and we weren't there. It was just a disaster that first one. But then um, we decided that we were going to break up the band and me and Scythe drove down, Scythe drove me down to Liverpool and we hung out in his kitchen, his mum's kitchen for a bit. And we were so nervous and we were talking about you know, the days that we spent there when we were kids. We were uh, just having laughing, crying fits. And we went around, we broke the band up, and it was grim. And I, I, I thought that everybody wouldn't be bothered, that it was just kind of a natural end, but um, it wasn't pretty. But then we drove back into London, uh, listening to the John Peel show, and he played a track from King Size uh, called The Old New Stand at Hamilton Square. And he was saying, I used to buy my enemy at the Old New Stand at Hamilton Square. And I knew that because I'd read an article where he'd mentioned it, which is why I wrote the song, because I used to buy mine there as well. Fantastic. Uh, it's a really nice uh, circular peel thing. God, that is very cosmic, isn't it? Was it just, did you just do the one peel session? I think we did three or four. Right. My God, did they get better? Yeah. There's a time when you're kind of, um, and I regret not pushing back against it. You're just kind of moved over into Mark Goodyear and you have to do these sessions now, you know, the more mainstream. Yes. Yeah. It's tricky. So did you, as, as we sort of celebrated the millennium and you were thinking, my God, what happens next? Because that was quite a tidy, I know, a bit of a decade and a bit. So when we came into 2000, did you feel on New Year's Day, what happens what happens to the next saga of your life? Well, I'd spent New Year's Eve at midnight watching uh, Snuff as a carriage. Snuff playing some adverse song 
um, shaken vac, I think it was. Yeah, shaken vac, get your money back. Standing and, next um, to um, John uh, Steve Lamar. But um, they do a great I, version of Tiffany's I Think We're Alone now. Okay. <laughs> I um, I, 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 I was excited at first, and but I couldn't, I couldn't really work out um, what I wanted to do. And I was telling the guys who were looking after me then that I just wanted to meet up with producers and, um, you know, electronic artists and stuff. That I didn't want to form a band again, and I ended up doing exactly that. Um, so I just felt compromised and again, just frustration because it was all in my hands. You know, I was a grown man, I was 29 or whatever. And I, I could have just, um, done it myself, but I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. Yeah. And, um, to find myself back on stage again with a band and the band, not as good as the band I'd been in. Uh, yeah, was this Brave Captain? Good. This is the Brave Captain period. Yeah, yeah. I had a couple of periods, I think. I had a band, we, we didn't do anything. We, I think we recorded a couple of songs, but then we never played live or anything. Um, and then the second band I had was a band called Dorero, who were a really good band, um, who already existed. You know. uh, they were based in Cardiff here. Um, but still, it was it was a band, you know, and, yeah. I, and I it took me two or three Brave Caps and Records before I started to sound like I wanted to sound like. Yeah. So was that a difficult? Did you find the O years quite tricky? Yeah, all of them, every single one. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, yeah. I was in a. Um, I was just full of regrets and bitterness and uh, just couldn't understand how I'd got here. Um, until until I started having kids, really. I think that shakes it out of you. Yes, it does. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, I made, I made quite a lot of music, but I didn't, you know, nobody noticed. Do you, did you go through an Adam Curtis phase, by the way? Who is the film uh, the filmmaker, the documentary? Because you do an album called All Watched Over by Machines of yeah. Grace. And I thought, oh, Adam Curtis. Well, that was some time before that, yeah. But I, it's the title of a Richard Brotigan poem. Yes. Um, but I did go through that period uh, phase that like from like late 90s I wasn't completely uh flat earth but I was certainly um you know on the Chomsky side of things and uh were you looking uh, for um patterns in chaos and trying to read meaning yeah into them? just meaning yeah because I, I couldn't find it in my own life and I couldn't find it in small things so that everything had to be just a big conspiracy and I wow. got shaken out of it after uh 9-11 when I went to when I went to um 
the mayor of London's gaff on the Thames for a CND gathering thing. Jesse Jackson gave a speech, it was incredible. Um, and I was talking to a journalist that I knew and I was banging on about some 9-11 thing. And he spoke to me like somebody should have spoken to me. <laughs> 10 years earlier, my career would have been a lot different, I think. Just snapped me out of it, you know. Wow. Uh, yeah. I, I went through it once, but yeah. Um, Did you? Because I, I remember a journalist called Tom Wolfe, who was kind of yeah. batting these conversations away. And he said, look, I know these, I know these government people. I know these... They would not be able, they haven't got the ability to plan anything. They would not yeah. be able to plan this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was beyond I mean, anything. usual. They probably are responsible, but just by sheer incompetence. Um, you know, rather yes. than any conspiracy. Any brilliance. <laughs> so was that because because then the the teen years. You do an amazing album, but this is a few years. Well, actually, that's a bit later, isn't it? Because then you do solo work. So, you know, there's the the one which is The Breaks, but then there's New Shapes of Life. And that yeah. seems like a bit of a moment in your in your solo career. Is that right? Yeah, that is exactly right. Yeah, and that was a, that was a Bowie thing. That when he died, I went back and listened to all his records and I read a lot about him. And I thought... If I'm going to make a record, it has to be the best it can be. And and I don't want to write another record where I'm embarrassed to play half the songs live. There's always a, a moment in a song where I think, oh, I hate this lyric, and I step back and sing it, you know, to the drummer. And I just didn't want to do that. And I I, I wanted it to um, I wanted to express myself, and I wanted to uh, dig deeper. Um, and it ended up, you know, it ended up with me having a breakdown at the end of it because all my, all the uh, behaviours I was trying to explore were getting worse and worse as I was exploring them. And I went completely loopy in here. Um, but it was great because then I got help and, you know, I got medication and, and I started to feel better than I've ever felt since then. And I feel much more... Um, focused and in the moment and I don't ruminate and uh, regret anything like I did before um, and I can plan and it's down to that that record I love that record yes no it's it's amazing I was listening to you know quite a bit of it today and thinking Thank this is this has got real quality and depth and uh, yeah and I just wondered it seems to sort of stick out with from some of the earlier solo work that you've done and I thought oh, yeah the breaks was people really like the breaks but again I was like oh it's just another band records you know I keep doing them and I keep not wanting to do them I just fall back into it so was it quite a cathartic cathartic experience processing and dealing with this you know the album new shapes of life yeah absolutely yeah um I was I wasn't starting, I was trying to discover myself, but I wasn't starting with myself because that's what I tried to do before and I just couldn't do it. So I was lifting, I was looking at things, paintings and um, uh, just watching 
weird films and stuff and then writing about them and I would end up writing about myself using that language the language of the painting or the language of whatever it was I was looking at and I, I had a glossary as well which I'd never done you know I had um, mirrors and I had the van um, you know and they all kind of was symbolic I'd, I, I'd never done anything like that it was a complete um uh bowie thing yes i really yeah i really did just um try and uh take on all the things he'd done well you do not trying, to sound, not trying to sound like him yeah yeah i had tried cutouts before and um i did it for this album and it's weird because you think that you've done it You've done the cut-up method, but then you go back a little later and check, and you haven't really used an awful lot of it. But it's very good for just unlocking. You know, it's a very good process. It's like um, yoga or, or yeah, exercise, breathing techniques. It's just something that puts you into a space, a creative space. Yes, absolutely. And did this kind of have a shift in both kind of not just medi medication, but sort of diet, exercise, kind of mindfulness, meditation, anything like that? Yeah, I do struggle to um, keep it up, but I'm always doing something. Yes. God. <laughs> but it's really easy to just knock me off track. Um, you know, I'll do something for a few weeks and then uh, I have to go away for the weekend. You know, I'll get back and I won't do it again. Yes, this is this is I, always easily done, actually, isn't it? Yeah. And then what's kind of, how have you manoeuvred this kind of next period and also, you know, like the, the dreadful lockdown? Because obviously that's that kind of threw a lot of people's kind of, I don't know, mojo really, didn't it? Before lockdown, I'd started to write a book and it was the first time I'd ever kind of uh, got going and thinking, oh, this is it, now I'm doing it. Uh, but as soon as lockdown started and I was at home with the kids, it's just <laughs> bloody impossible. Um, so I was, I can't, you know, I, I just spent a lot of time with the family and the kids over lockdown. It was actually quite nice. Yes. Didn't get an awful, didn't get an awful lot of work done. I had some ideas and um, since then I've started a subscription service where I, um, I don't just like making music, I like making films, I like making um, collage, I love collage. And when I do collage, it makes me realise that my music is quite collage as well. And I just like taking things and sticking them together. Rather than doing anything in a, a linear fashion, I just, I struggle with that. Um, yes. So I send out, I make a little magazine, I've done two now, called New Shapes. And it's just got stories and illustrations in photographs and stuff. Um, and I, I've got so much all the, in, you know, that 10 years when I couldn't, I found it really hard. I still made a lot of music that I never finished. So I'm kind of releasing little unfinished EPs. Yes. Hello. There you go. I'm doing an interview. Oh, 
Is... <laughs> <laughs> Excellent timing. <laughs> a... Come on. I did. <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean? Sorting out? It's not doing it. Like it's been all weird. The sound card. All right, I'll be down. I'll just finish this. I'll be down. Okay. Okay. Because it's not. It's it's plugged in and everything, but it's not like. All right. It's, yeah. Yeah. That sounds technical. But yeah, so did you also, because you also did this col uh, collaboration uh, with David Quantech, wasn't it? Um, oh, yeah, the film, yeah. Um, yes. Well, that was quite a while ago now. That was uh, 2012, I think. And um, he'd sent me a story, a book of short stories about music. Like, it was like a science fiction book, but it was about music. And he said, read the last story. And it was called Snodgrass. And it was about John Lennon if he'd uh, left the Beatles in 62. So it wasn't one of those, what if John was still alive now? Mm -hmm. It was he'd left the Beatles in 62. And this was uh, uh, catching up with him in 1990. And he's, you know, he's unemployed and he's so very sarcastic and funny. Uh, and I thought it was great. And then a little while later, he said, "Right, we're going to make a, we're going to make a film, and we've got the money for it. So, do you want to do the music?" Excellent. Yeah, oh God. that's a nice one. How did you did you um get to see the Beatles film? By the way, the um, the one that was on Disney, and we all watched it over Christmas. Oh, I've only managed to see it four or five times now. <laughs> <laughs> I watched it. I watched it when it came out when I was on tour for Christmas because we were supporting the charlatan. So I was able to be back in bed by half nine in the hotel. So I would watch it then. Uh, and then when I came home, I watched it with my partner. And then I watched it with Sonny there. And then he's watched it a few times now. So I'm, you know, if I'm passing, I'll sit down with him and watch a few hours with it. <laughs> I can't get enough of it. It's incredible. Yes. It's everything I wanted, really. You know, it's just to spend time, just to spend time with them where they're not on, you know, they're not, um, not a gig, it's not an interview. No, it's just fascinating. And I think when they stuck a microphone in the flowers for, you know, that conversation that they would never have a clue was being recorded, that must have, I mean, obviously, Paul must have thought, Oh my God, I didn't remember. Uh, that was kind of... Yeah, although I, I, they've done a bit of a thing there because there are five or six people in that conversation and they've edited everyone else out and they've, put, they've sort of edited the conversation as well. It's, you know, the spirit of it is there and it's incredible that, it's, that it exists. Yes. It's a bit of a trick, that one. Yeah, it's good. But with the band, what was it like because you've reformed haven't you and done some dates and material oh, no they have i haven't i wasn't asked right jesus <laughs> christ because <laughs> <laughs> i was just kind of a bit confused so right so they got together and they just yeah. said that they hadn't invited you no because um sykes had recorded one of his solo albums and i think He'd done it with he'd done it with them, um, which I I kind of I found out on Twitter, but I, it didn't bother me at all. 
and he rang me up and he said, I've done this. I said, that's absolutely fine. Um, you know, do whatever you want to do. But then he said, can I use the name the Boo Radleys? And I said, no, why would you want to, why would you want to do that? Because I don't, you know, I really like this record and I don't want it to just disappear. I, well, I, and I, well, that's what I've been doing for the last 20 years. I could have just called my, any of my records the Boo Radleys. So I, I wasn't happy and I said no, and they've just done it anyway. And um, it did bother me for a bit. I think I started reading their interviews and that was a mistake. And once I stopped doing that, I'm fine with it again now. Right, that's just gone. Yes. But did that feel like a big thing to to navigate? Yeah, it did at the time, but I think the more it goes on, the more I'm glad. Because we toyed with the idea before, and I, I um, a couple of times over the last 20 years where I've seriously said, you know, should we do it again? And it's always been Scythe that said, no, I can't, I'm too busy or whatever. Um, but just watching them play and listening to the record and seeing photographs of them, I, I never want to be there. So it's kind of knocked that out of me, really. Good. I, just, yeah. I, enjoy what I, I really enjoy what I'm doing. I don't really need to do anything else. Yes. And has that, does that feel more true to your artistic side to, to you know, do Martin, Martin Carr and what It future? does. It does, but um, I think, yeah, because I think I, if they hadn't have done that, I think at some point we would have done it and I would have probably regretted it. So I, I've been, um, you know, I've kind of been pushed into this principled position. <laughs> mm. Does that mean when you play your solo gigs that you can use the material that you recorded with the Boo Radleys or have yeah. written? I wrote them, so yeah, I can do I like them. Yes, there you go. It keeps the legacy yeah. going, I suppose, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't do many, but I, I do a couple that I like. What have you got planned for the future? Uh, I'm going to start putting together an album um, starting this week. I really want to make, I really want to make videos for people, which is just something that's happened out of nothing. Um, I made one for the new single, the Strange Journey single, which I really like. So I'd like to do that. Um, just keep on making music. The live thing, the Charleston store was great because we got paid well and I could afford to have a good band and we were supporting, so I was in bed early. There was no pressure about having to sell tickets. <laughs> it's just... Magic. I don't want to go back to doing, you know, to spending loads of money and eight people turn up and it's just depressing. Yes. So I don't know what's going to happen with that stuff. Um, I would like to do something for Giant Steps next year, but I don't know what yet. That'll be the 30th anniversary. My God, that's a lot to um, manoeuvre really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and just keep on doing what I'm doing, really. I'm. Um, I feel employed for the first time since the band split up, I think. You know, I feel useful. Yes. 
which is good. I mean, just yeah. I mean, if you could have said something to your 16-year-old self starting out, is there any sort of little word of wisdom or advice you would have sort of sort of whispered in their ear? Um, I wish I'd listened to more people, especially people who were older and more experienced than me, instead of I just because I I I I tried to mask my uh, inadequacies and I was in just being very um, uh, cocky and uh, you know I wouldn't listen to people. And I you know if I went back to being fixed, I don't think I could change anything because of yes, this is I true. didn't know how to do it then, and I'm not sure that. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if um, uh, I would certainly try and because I wasn't really interested. You mentioned before about in the late eighties, everyone was getting into uh, going into going to raves and into acid house stuff. I didn't actually like any of the music, so and I wasn't very good at, um, around lots of people. But I do wish that I'd kind of uh, explored more of um, the machine, machine, uh, you know, like drum machines and synth and yes. uh, samplers and stuff. I am disappointed that we just ended up being another guitar band. You could have done your Earthling album, couldn't you? Could have. Yes, you'll have to see the uh, KLF film soon yeah, as well. You'll yeah, find yeah. that fascinating. There is a new David Bowie one, which I've just heard about. I just saw okay. the trailer called Moon Age Daydream, and I saw Tony Visconti said this is going to be amazing. So it's like, okay, interesting documentary on David Bowie. What's so. your um, favourite album? Um, I think, God, that's a tricky one, isn't it? I've got a lot of mm. fond memories of different different periods I mean it does I mean it's there, I did you know I mean I really love you know Ziggy Stardust I love Diamond Dogs I love you know Young Americans I can remember being obsessed with that for quite a few years I remember my brother when he first got a mini he he had an eight track and he had the L, a low album that we played all the time in it <laughs> which I just thought was yeah. great and I really liked actually Heathen and Reality as well I thought they were okay. totally two incredible albums um you know and I love the first three tracks on Let's Dance and I quite like some of the Tin Machine stuff um I didn't there was some of the stuff that he did in the 90s I wasn't so kind of amazed by but yeah. you know I've always been kind of very kind of amazed with Bowie really he's just been one of those characters that's um he's always been there you know and he's kind yeah. of this, this kind of thing about David Bowie just seems to grow and grow which is quite strange really so that's amazing so um what about yourself oh I like hunky dory and I like um um I really like low um but I think Hunky Dory's just got it's just the piano. Piano, Mike, I just I just was it Mike it. was it Mike Garson or Rick Waitman? I think Rick Waitman done <clears throat> a few of them. I think a lot of it is Bowie himself. Yes. Um but the Rick Waitman plays on uh, I think what, what I've always been amazed and fascinated with Bowie was that during his 60s period, you know, the music was so hit and miss and 
kind of forgettable in a, in a way. And what what I often think, you know, he was kind of going in the studio, writing it, going in the studio, releasing it at the same time. You had, you know, like the Beatles, the Stones, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Jefferson Airplane, all this amazing music, and David presenting his latest, and it's like interesting David and then this, this amazing <laughs> change you know there's this uh, Tony DeFries and Angie Bowie and this kind of yeah. moment where things change and you're thinking god you know how did you suddenly start you know after six years of pretty well going nowhere fast start to develop this amazing ability to write I think, songs. I think sometimes you need maybe he was just given the space by having those people the people who supported him around him and uh it allows you to. Because I remember when I think about when I think about wake up and and those records, it's I I just felt like completely um, free to do what I wanted to do, and it just came so easily, which it didn't do before and it didn't do afterwards. When you're yes. worrying about things, um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what. Um, Occasionally, you just unlock. Yeah, I think the and the great and Bowie, and you have to look for it as well because Bowie, you know, he ended up doing Black Star. It's not like you have your imperial phase and then it can never come back again. Mm. Uh, I think McCartney's done some some great stuff after quite a fallow period in the nineties. But yeah, Black uh, Star is is just absolutely incredible. You know, it's it's kind of hard to listen to. I, for various reasons, because it's like, Christ, yeah. how, how did you manage to do that and go through that process at the time? So, um, yes, it is. That, that That's quite boggling, really. I mean, on, on the artist front, because when you were talking a bit about art, did you did you go through a bit of a Mark Mark Rothko phase of kind of the, the kind of blank on, you know, the quite dense colour, just one shape? Or was it more Edward Hopper kind of with the lonely characters in the night cafe? Uh, what are you talking about now? Uh, new shapes when I was well, just when you talk about artists and and sort of listening and um, looking at paint, paintings, I just wondered if there was any particular. It paint. was yeah, Francis Bacon. Um, I, I, I in a way, it's like Rothko. I mean, there's more in there, but there's enough space for you to see things that aren't really there or to. Um, I can't describe why I like his stuff so much, but I really feel like I'm in there. You know, I, one of the songs is called um, Three Studies of the Male Back, and that's the Bacon painting, and it's one of his triptychs, I think, and it's a guy shaving. And I, I don't know what, it's the space and it's the colour that he uses. Um, and I feel like that guy that's, that's in there. Yes. Yeah. But I do, I, I just have lots of art books that I was flicking through. Um, but he was the main, he was the main guy. Um, yes. I think yeah. I just flicked through until I, I thought I saw myself in one of the paintings. Oh, there I am. <laughs> I, I find that a little bit with Edward Hopper, you know, the night cafe. The, um, I don't know if you know the one where, yeah, it was yeah. Like a night, yeah, it was just, I just always loved that kind of image, you know, these mm -hmm. three sort of people just, you know, together, but apart, you know, just sort of sitting there, you know, I think yeah. it's just a brilliant image. Because, you know, it's just like a, a painting of outside a diner, but the three lives in there, 
each of those three people have these experiences and enormous lives and narratives yes it's, yeah. it's an amazing one but look thank you ever so much for this martin this has been amazing thank you. and um if you want i can always send you the link and then you can always put it on your social media platform sites oh thank you yeah okay that'll be fantastic but thank you ever so much for the time and uh yes and also you know i love that solo album so much so um yes that's kind of been a real highlight actually listening to that um oh, but yes one then <laughs> do another that would be great <laughs> anyway look take care of yourself and um hopefully you, man. see you around anyway take care thank you martin cheers good luck cheers you too bye-bye and that dear listener is the end of the interview just to, just in case you were wondering um it was and why i leave them because it's um always makes me smile here and the way i finish a conversation yes it's a bit fumbly but that's um that's my my way of doing things. Anyway, look, uh, a massive thank you to Martin Carr for giving me the time for that interview. This has been the C86 Show. I'm David East. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Um, keep it positive and groovy. We like groovy here. Um, otherwise, don't bother. And all these interviews have been archived. And you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>